Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today, we have a crossover episode for you. In my other podcast program, the History of California podcast, I teach the history of the state of California and interview leading scholars in the field. The podcast I'm bringing you today is with Dr. John Mac Farragher. An emeritus professor from Yale, Dr. Farragher is the author of many books, but today we are focused on his most recent book, California and American History, which I think will become the popular history of California, and I hope it makes its way into classrooms across our state. If you enjoy this episode, you can find more podcasts like this at the History of California podcast found on any of your podcasting apps. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. John Mac Farragher. Fresno's best. Why did you choose to write California and American history? Um, and how does it differ in, in your point of view from other popular histories? For example, like the books of Kevin Starr, which are kind of just the canon, if you will, of California history. And whenever you think about uh, popular or public histories, you tend to think of his name. Um, so what are, what are you adding to the conversation with this book? Well, let me go back a little bit. I, for me, this is a, a full circle. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I grew up in Southern California. I uh, went to school there. I went to University of California, Riverside, where I got a great education and great professors. You worked as a young man for the county of Los Angeles as a social worker before I went to graduate school at Yale and became a historian. Doing California history was something I had always had in the back of my mind, but through a full career, it took me to the very end to work myself back to. <laughs> I, uh, in 2016, I published a, a history I had been working on for the previous 10 years on uh, violence and justice in frontier Los Angeles called Eternity Street. And uh, which I love that, that book. book. I love yeah, that, that book. book. Yeah, it's a wonderful that book. Immersed me back in early California and Southern California and Los Angeles history. And uh, it was a it was a it was a very wonderful experience for me. Uh, at the time, my wife and I both were living part of the year in Pasadena. Mm. We had a house. Uh, we bought us Piedater a little place in Pasadena beginning of the 21st century. And we, we've now sold it, but we very enjoyably were spending a good deal of time there while I researched the book, uh, Eternity Street. And then uh, Yale University Press, who I have published with numerous times, have, after I published that book, which was not with them, um, it was a commercial press, but they gave made me an offer of writing a, a general history of California. And it was an offer that was too good to refuse. For one, it was an unusual offer for me as a, an academic historian in that it was uh, intended to be a book for a general audience, uh, in particular for young readers. Uh, there's a whole market, a young reader's market. And the, the, the secret is, of course, that everybody buys them because they're, they're the notable feature of a young reader's uh, uh, book is that it's, it's readable. <laughs> mm. And uh, the offer to do this book of California was an offer to do a book without footnotes and without bibliography, just based on my 
understanding of California. Of course, I did a lot of reading, but uh, all in mostly in secondary sources, although there are a number of great primary sources available now, newspapers, for example, on the internet. So from 2016 to 2022, I was researching and writing that book and turned out, of course, a lot of that time was the pandemic and it turned out to be a perfect project for me during the pandemic because it didn't involve travel to archives. Given the opportunity, it allowed me to sort of close the circle and come back to California. You ask about the difference between my book and a book like Kevin Starr's series. I, I mean, I love Professor Starr's uh, work, the late Professor Starr. And, but the difference between the two of us is that he's an intel- he was an intellectual historian and I'm a social historian. Mm-hmm. And I think that that shows in the way we approach our subjects. You know, the Star's book, each chapter is a wonderful, generally a wonderful little thumbnail portrait of some California figure and the way they thought and the way they argued and the contradictions in their thought and arguments. Mine is tends to be more about everyday life and a lived life of ordinary people. Not that there are not intellectuals in my book and not that there are not, it's not social history in his, but I think anybody who picked the two books up would see right away that the tone and the coverage is very different. Yeah. And Star, his librarianness comes through in his, in his work and uh, just the wealth of his knowledge of the literary history of California as well. Um, I appreciated a lot of things about your book when I first opened it up, especially as a K-12 educator, you know, the kind of short chapters uh, that give kind of uh, momentum and flow. Um, and these are the kinds of books, um, as someone that works with younger people and thinks about what people consume, thinking about ways to accelerate people through, you know, a big history. This is, I found one of the best ways to do it. And there, I've used other books um, I'm forgetting what they're called. It's, I think it's called A Little History of the United States or A Little History of Art and how they structured their chapters. I've, I kind of saw some similarities. How did yeah. you well, go ahead? That's, that's coaching because, uh, in fact, the original idea for this book was be, to be uh, part of that series. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so that's where the template came from. Now, we've it spun off and the Yale University Press decided they didn't want it as a part of that series. They wanted to start a, a new series. But They've had very good luck with that format. And um, the short chapter, I love the short chapters. Uh, and I know, you know, it's like, okay, I can read this before I go to sleep. <laughs> mm. I'm going to read it and put it down, have a place to pick it up, and not in the middle of a chapter, you know, because you know you, you get some long monumental chapter and you read a third of the way through and you put it down. You, it's hard to get back into it. But if there's a chapter close and a new story starts on the next page, you can put it down and know that you can pick it up the next day and start again. Uh, and I, I've had people tell me that it really facilitates them reading the book. So I'm very happy about that. Yeah. And let's talk about uh, structure and putting things in and leaving things out. Um, whenever you're doing a survey course or general history, you always have to pick and choose, right? Um, in my world in K-12, we, we have what's called priority standards, which is a way of picking certain things and focusing on them. And using the word priority is just another way of saying we're choosing to do this and not this. So how did you choose what to include and what to not include in your book? Well, I made a couple of arbitrary decisions at the beginning of the project. And one of them was that I was committed. I'm an early American, I tend to be an early American historian. So I, uh, most of my work is in the colonial period or the 19th century. I'm not a modern historian. I'm not a 20th century historian. Now, this book was going to, I was going to be writing 20th century history. So it was a challenge for me. But I made a decision that I would, since there were 40 chapters in the book, uh, 
I would try to pace the book so that when I got to chapter 20, I was just introducing the American entrance into California. So that would be the 1840s and 50s. And I think if you check the book, you'll find that uh, somewhere around chapter 20 is the Bear Flag uh, Rebellion and the Gold Rush and the rest. Generally, a, a book of California history would get in, would get there maybe, you know, 40 chapter book, maybe chapter three. Mm, yeah. So I had, uh, that gave me nearly half the book to go through the Native American period, the Spanish conquest, the missions, the secularization of missions, the rise of the Californios, the Rancho period, uh, and then all the conflict leading up to the American acquisition. That meant I could stretch out there. Now, it also meant I had to compress when it came to the American period, but I felt that I could afford to do that since so, you know, so much of the attention before has been on the modern period. And I, I was working with the assumption that uh, as an early American historian, that what came early was formative to what came later. And I try to make that argument in the book. And so that was the second priority commitment, as you would put it, uh, the priority coverage was that I would, from the beginning, make every effort I could to include all the various peoples of California. Now, that's quite quite a challenge when you think there are you know something like uh, uh, two or three hundred uh, Native California uh, bands, peoples. Uh, there are uh, the Spaniards coming in, but of course they come from polygot back background. Many of them were mestizos from Mexico or New Spain, the who had Spanish and Native ancestors. There were Filipinos on the ships that came from Manila across the Pacific. There were Russians at Fort Ross. I mean, you know, so there was there was plenty of diversity, and that diversity is very much tied to the economy. So diversity is was a fundamental fact from the very beginning of California history. In economic terms, the missions relied on native people to do all the work, and then that would continue past American acquisition and the uh, the use of uh, people of color for agricultural labor from Chinese in the fields, Japanese, Filipinos, Mexicans, uh, and a variety of other peoples of color. So that that was a priority. Uh, of mine to make sure that I was telling the story of all these groups, as well as the uh, the conquerors and the political elites. So those sort of set the terms of my agenda and it brains for readers to say uh, whether I was successful at that, at that at not, or not. Well, and I, I you know, there, it's a popular trope in um science books these days to use that kind of calendar year to describe the history of the earth and, you know, <laughs> how, you know, us, we're just in kind of that last minute on December 31st. And I feel that way in California history too, which is California, the state is just a very recent phenomenon, but, you know, we have, we have archeological evidence that there's been indigenous people in, for example, the central Valley for before the pyramids were built. And so that's, that's part of the story, but now obviously source material makes that complicated. Could you briefly talk about that in terms of how you thought about um, researching and writing about periods before maybe that we have written evidence for? Well, one of the interesting things about California history is that there, from the initial contact between Europeans 
and native Californians, which occurred in the 1540s. So only 50 years after Columbus's expedition, there was contact. But then a long period of time elapses before colonization and conquest, which doesn't happen until 1769. So you have 200 years in which natives have made contact and continue to make fleeting contact with Europeans. And there are some, there certainly are the European records of that. And we can do what historians call reading against the grain mm. to read those accounts and try to extract from them a native point of view. Mm. But that gave me a lot of time from 1540s to the 1770s to explore the issues uh, of you know, various contextual issues of native California using the sources of the Spanish, but allowing Native people to predominate because there, there were no settlements, there were no colonial settlements yet. So that, that gave me a lot of space. Now, for give you an example of the way that that could be used. When in 1542, Cabrillo first made contact with the Kumeyaay people of San Diego, what we become San Diego, when they first saw him, they said to each other and then to him, you must be the people we heard about. That's not the way I heard the story. The way I heard the story as a kid growing up in California was that, uh, you know, the Spanish came to the beaches and the natives treated them like gods. But in fact, the native people had already heard from their interior cousin living along the floodplain of the Colorado River that they had made contact with Spanish invaders. This was Coronado's expedition. And they had, you know, had been trading, coming to the coast to, to make exchanges and trade. And they had told their cousins, the Kumeyaay, about this encounter. And when the Kumeyaay saw the Spanish land, they, they heard the guy, here's the people we talked, we heard about. These are the people to beware of. And so what they say to them is, and everybody says that, we heard about you already. We're not the people you want to talk to. You want to go up the coast a little ways and talk to them. It's like, please. Please don't stay here. Go somewhere else. Mm. And you get a real sense of uh, both the, the, the native sense of their protection of their homeland, their priority, uh, going to protect uh, against intruders, and their uh, attempt to avoid this encounter as much as they possibly can, even though they are fascinated with uh, you know, the trade beads and the sparkling objects and the cloth and you know, things that they have never seen before that they immediately know could be very useful. They'd love to have them. Um, but most of all, they just want to get rid of these people who they is very dangerous. So it allows us to tell the story from the native point of view using Spanish sources. And as I said, I had in the book, I have a lot of space that I can use to uh, tell that story. Absolutely. Let's jump into what I found was a theme throughout the book, which is diversity. Now, California just is a complex, diverse state in many ways, ethnically, uh, topographically, uh, in terms of climate, everything. I mean, it seems to undergird everything. And diversity can spin two ways. It can spin towards uh, appreciation of the complexity, but it also can lead to division uh, because certain parts of the state are so different. Uh, I live, for example, in the Central Valley of California, which is very different than Southern California, for example. And people here tend to view our differences as more of a divide than a 
you know, a connection point in your mind, does diversity more bind the state or pull it apart? Well, that's, that's a fascinating question. It's sort of the $64,000 question. And then the first thing I think to recognize is that California, as we know it, that is to say, California as a productive agricultural economy, as a uh, which is the way California rose to prominence because of its agriculture, that would have been impossible without cultural diversity. That because the the system was set up, as I mentioned before, as a system that ran on the labor of people of color uh, for the benefit of white settlers or colonists. Now it was certainly true about the Spanish period. Uh, the uh, military and the priesthood, nearly all of them, at least the officers and the priests came from Spain. The soldiers came from New Spain. Uh, they were of mixed background, but certainly different than they saw themselves as Spaniards, however, spoke Spanish, different from the native people. Native people were divided into many different linguistic groups. In fact, the largest population in North America, a native population in North America, the only population, if you north of Mexico, Mexico had a larger native population, the central highlands of Mexico. But of the regions that would become the United States, California had the largest population of native people and also the most diverse population of native, native people. But as you say, the very diverse ecology, very diverse landscape, very diverse ge geology, uh, correspondingly, a very diverse native occupation. But, uh, and the other thing to remember is that the Spanish only colonized the coastal region from San Francisco south. Uh, the interior remained native and the north remained native under native in native control. Even if you considered all the mission Indians of a certain of a certain one certain type, which they were not, they all spoke different languages and uh, had different customs. But even if the Mission Indians were counted as just one type of native people, uh, there were still hundreds more uh, in the in the back country. And so diversity powered the economy. Uh, the differences of culture and race were the differences of working in the fields as opposed to managing field work. Um, and that pattern was taken up, of course, by the Californios when they secularized the missions, the mission the native mission people became the uh, the vaqueros, the workers of the ranchos. When the Americans came in and began to convert to first wheat production and then row crop agriculture, people of color, first native people, then Asian people became the workers, finally Mexican people. So the economy continued to run on this diverse labor force where diversity was problematic was, of course, in political terms, because it was a diverse economy and a dominating uh, racial uh, polity in which white people controlled the sources of power and authority and people of color were subordinate. That was true through uh, the 19th century and into the 20th century, despite the fact that in the aftermath of the Civil War, the 14th Amendment declared that all persons in the United States were subject to the Bill of Rights and were protected by all the rights and privileges embedded in the Constitution. It took a long time for those promises to be fulfilled in California. So we have a, a state that on in economic terms is 
coming together, people of uh, uh, different backgrounds are coming together to make the state work. On the other hand, uh, when it come to, came to protecting political and civil rights, pulling apart based on race and culture. And that's the fundamental contradiction in California history. And thus the, the importance of the resolution, at least partial resolution, of that conundrum in the post-World War II period with the struggle for civil rights and the achievement, uh, some form of equality, or at least the aspirations of equality for all Californians uh, in the 21st century. Let's jump into uh, the, one of the first sections I want to talk about in the book, which is about railroads. Uh, so far in the podcast, we're kind of up to the gold rush in terms of our chronological history. And so we're about to get into this period. Um, and those chapters are very interesting. Um, I don't know if people really know about the impact railroads had on California. Um, some negative, some positive. Uh, can you talk a little bit just to start um, what, what was the initial impact of the railroad system on California and why were some Californians afraid of it? Well, of course, uh, you know, California was settled in, uh, in and around the gold rush, 1840, 1848, 1849, 1850, California became a state in 1850. I was unable to agree on where that line would be built. Would it be built across the southern tier or the northern tier of the United States? Where would it begin? Would it begin in New Orleans or would it begin in um, Omaha? And uh, that wasn't resolved until after this, till, till the Civil War uh, decided that question. So the railroad is getting built in the 1860s as a result of the Pacific Railroad Act passed by the Republican Congress after secession. So clearly the route was going to go north. And the, the railroad was built in two directions, one moving east from Omaha and the other moving west, I mean, moving west from Omaha, the other moving east from Sacramento. And Californians were incredibly excited about the opening of that line and saw that as extending prosperity throughout the state. And they were sorely disappointed by the result, uh, which was not prosperity at all, but a decade of depression. The rail was completed in 1869, and the 1870s went down in history as the terrible decade, the terrible 70s. Now, why was that? Well, one of the reasons was that there was a national depression. So California couldn't avoid national trends. Mm -hmm. um, a national depression that was caused by collapsing railroads, in fact, yeah. overfinanced, under-trafficked railroads that were built to nowhere, that had to then be paid off without being able to. And, and the California line was one of those. It was not until the end of the century that the invention of refrigerated rail cars and the improvement of rail lines meant that the continent, the transcontinental traffic actually paid for itself, made a profit for the line. So what about the meantime? You know, the people who built the railroad in California, uh, the big four, the, uh, uh, Leland Stanford and Henry Huntington, Carlos P. Huntington and um, their ilk received enormous subsidies from the federal government to uh, build the railroad. And they used much of that subsidy to buy up 
the local rail lines in California, as well as the ferry lines and the steamboat lines. And by the time the railroad opened up in 1769, the owners of the uh, Central Pacific uh, Railroad, which became the Southern Pacific eventually, basically held a monopoly grip on the entire transportation infrastructure of the state. And from the 1870s until the early 20th century, they kept a tight control on that infrastructure and used their profits to corrupt the legislature in their favor. Mm. It was a classic case of crony capitalism. And uh, Californians got up in arms as early as the 1870s. Um, They passed a constitution, a new constitution at the end of the 1870s that created a railroad commission, a um, uh, an equaliza- tax equalization commission and attempting to, to bring the railroad to heel, but the railroad was too powerful. They were able to corrupt those, those proceedings. Not until California elected a reforming governor in 1910, Hiram Johnson, and the legislature in 1911 passed a number of significant political reforms was the railroad tamed and, and uh, leashed. So for most of the 19th century, for all of the 19th of, uh, century from, the 18, from 1870 on, the railroad had a stranglehold on California and really helped, held back California's economic growth. Uh, you know, it's a, it, we tend, as Californians, I know I'm growing up in California, you think there was the gold rush and then about everything boomed and you just kept booming until I was born. But no, it was not the way it was. The gold rush was a boom and then the boom ended and the last decades of the 19th century, very slow growth in California. More people moved to the states of the Dakotas in the 1880s and the 1890s than moved to California. And I think people tend to associate robber barons in that Gilded Age with more of the East Coast. And, yeah, but California uh, was the par example of it. You know, it was yeah, the, yeah. And there, there wouldn't have been the, the strong labor movement in California without the reaction to that, correct? Exactly right. Okay, can you talk a little bit about that? One of the things that should be said about that is that that uh, labor movement and political movement, uh, the Working Man's Party, for example, which was very powerful in California in the 17, in the 1870s and 80s and into the 1890s, uh, was compromised by a a virulent um, racism, anti-Asian, anti-Chinese, anti-Japanese, anti-Indian, eventually anti-Filipino, anti-Mexican. This was the original sin of California. Uh, It it held back progressive movements like the labor movement uh, because they were unable to really unite the entire working class. Well, and I would be remiss if I didn't uh, plug my old college advisor's book, uh, Bob Cherney's uh, work on politics, power, and urban development in San Francisco. Uh, I learned a lot about this in my undergrad years uh, working with him, and it's a fascinating history. And if uh, labor history in California is definitely worth visiting uh, if you're interested in subjects like this. Definitely. Bob Cherney, great historian. Let's jump to uh, talking, uh, we're talking about the sad aspect of the labor movement, but let's talk then about uh, Chinese immigrants to California. How, how did Chinese immigrants uh, to California contribute to the development beyond the railroad? I think we have the story of the railroad in our minds, but there's a, a much bigger story there that I'd love for you to just touch on for a moment. Well, of course, the Californians, they, uh, the Chinese weren't drawn to California originally to build the railroad. They, were, they, they came like other people came for the gold rush. And uh, they were among the first... Uh, peoples from the Pacific Rim to, um, to come into California. And that's 
important to note that you know there were um, people from the people came from the Philippines, from China, from the Hawaiian Islands, from Chile, Peru, Central America, Mexico. These are all Pacific Rim locations and drew people in from all over. Uh, so the Chinese made an entrance as early as the early 1850s, and railroad construction didn't begin until 1863. Now, the, uh, the uh, owners of the railroad made a concerted effort to recruit Chinese, uh, who they found to be uh, the uh, productive, uh, enterprising, disciplined workers. But as early as the uh, late 1860s, a large Chinese community had developed in San Francisco. Chinese immediately uh, were employed in textile manufacture. A big, there was a big factory district south of Mission in San Francisco, uh, foundries, tool shops, uh, machine shops. Chinese were employed there. They, of course, moved into agriculture. In many ways, the Chinese were the foundation of industrial and modern agricultural labor in uh, California. And in fact, in agriculture, the Chinese played a critical role in a number of areas. For one, they were experts at reclamation. So they were put to work in the Delta, uh, reclaiming marshy Delta land, uh, building dikes, uh, putting in uh, uh, row crops like uh, potatoes, then vegetables, uh, introducing vegetables to the California diet uh, earlier than they were introduced elsewhere in the country, introducing uh, fresh green vegetables, celery, lettuce, uh, tomatoes. These were all crops that were, if not uh, imported from China, the ability to tend them on an industrial scale was first uh, introduced by Chinese labor. So modern California agriculture owes an enormous amount uh, to the Chinese and then to their successors, the Japanese, who came in uh, late in the century and early in the 20th century after uh, Californians passed or or urged the passage of the Federal Chinese Exclusion Act in 1883, which eventually closed the door to Chinese immigration. But uh, as, as soon as that happened, people began to recruit labor in Japan and the Philippines and elsewhere uh, around the world. So uh, it did not end the need for a diverse people of color labor force. But uh, again, it was plain, it, it's, a, it's that contradiction I talked about before in California history, the contradiction between uh, diverse labor force and uh, 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 an unequal political system. Yeah, the, the book that impacted me, it's not about this subject specifically, but it's easily transferable is that book by Edward Baptist, The Half Has Never Been Told About uh, yeah. uh, Slavery's Impact on Capitalism. And it seems pretty transferable here. Would you say that the it's a pretty straight across, uh, clear, similar connection between those two things? Well, I, yes, uh, certainly in uh, the more we know about, the closer we get to actual production on the plantation, we see that many of the tech, the labor techniques, the labor discipline, and Baptiste's book is really good on this, in fact, showing how discipline in the cotton fields was uh, very closely policed by planters and overseers. And with, you know, with certain markers of productivity that people had to make, 
they had to hit their number. They had to get a certain, or they were punished and punished uh, brutally. And so there was a kind of industrial order in the field. Yes, the thing the, where I would uh, urge some caution in the comparison is slavery was a, a more totalizing institution. Right. Uh, California farm workers, well, the, the missions came close, but yeah. Chinese, Asian, uh, Japanese, Filipino, uh, Sikh, uh, Mexican farm workers were somewhat more independent on in their own private lives. Uh, there's a good side and a bad side to that because they, they were terribly impoverished and often lived in you know uh, deplorable conditions, particularly migrant workers uh, who, who had to put up with uh, terrible, terrible uh, living conditions. But it, so it wasn't slavery, but there were, as you say, very many, there are many continuities. And of course, it's important to remember that if had had the South had its way, they would have imported slavery into California. There's just no doubt about it. There were uh, hundreds of slaves brought in during the gold rush, African-Americans working as slaves in the fields for their masters, even after the passage of the, even after California's entry as a free state, uh, slaves continued to operate in the state uh, until the late 1850s. And and, uh, in fact, I I tell one of those the, the story about one of the uh, African American uh, men who sued for freedom. Archie Lee was his name in the late 1850s and became a political cause celeb in California. Yeah, and I agree with you. the The, the metaphor there is is limited, but merely uh, what I'm drawing on is this idea that we need to tell the story differently um, about capitalism's role and who f- who fueled it. Um, and I think in places where there wasn't legalized slavery um that's it's it's just people assume that the it's the other narrative you know self-starting entrepreneurs that are just building the building a capitalist economy but it's just not true and looking at the history of labor in california shows you that it's much more right well that's why i think it's important speaking about it before we met the taking the long view and looking to see what what took place early in California history, which laid foundations for what comes later. Now, the most important of those is the creation of a, an agricultural labor force based on cultural difference and race, mm-hmm. uh, so that Native people are the workers, and they're controlled by a white management force of priests and uh, soldiers, and compelled to, to work in the fields. And from that point until the present, California labor has predominantly the labor of people of color. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that pattern was laid down early, and it continued. You know, one of the first uh, pieces of legislation that California, white Californians passed after American acquisition, once, America, once California became a state in 1850, was a, a law that basically uh, incorporated the Spanish pattern of labor, the Spanish and California pattern of labor management as part of the American legal system, uh, Indian apprenticeship, they called it. Now, that, so that, you know, that, that's a little different than slavery, but it's not free labor. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's jump ahead in time a little bit and talk about the New Deal. Uh, there's, some, there's some big touchstones in California history where there were big 
impactful events uh, that change the direction or push California in certain ways. Um, let's start with kind of infrastructure. Um, how did how did the New Deal impact uh, California in terms of infrastructure? You know, the New Deal was um, one of the things they were able to do extremely well um, was public works. And uh, the public works in California were uh, system creating. So, I mean, some of the things we know, right, the Bay Bridge, for example, the Arroyo Seco Parkway, what when I was a kid was called the Pasadena Freeway, mm. the first freeway in California. That was uh, part of the New Deal. That thing is scary to drive on. I mean, yeah. nowadays, <laughs> now our cars are not designed for that freeway anymore. No, the it's freeway a, in air and, quotes. That quick, uh, that stop and quick startup. Yeah, that, it feels that, like a Disneyland ride when you're on it. You're <laughs> kind of winding back and forth. Right, uh, but far more important. I mean, those are important, and certainly as a harbinger of what was to happen, transportation development. You know, the the Bay Bridge and the uh, uh, the Pasadena Freeway are both uh, you know, sig- signals of what's going to happen in the post-war period. But uh, even more important, um, the uh, Colorado River project on the completion of uh, Hoover Dam and then the uh, the Central Valley project, uh, the creation of the Central Valley water system, the reservoirs on the, the, the falling rivers of the western slope of the uh, uh, Sierra Nevada, uh, the aqueduct system, uh, you know the Cal- so the central Central Valley project accounts for where you live, mm-hmm. uh, it created the uh, uh, the San Joaquin Valley as the agricultural heartland of California, and set the terms for later water development in the 1950s under um, the Democratic administration of uh, Edmund G. Pat Brown, where the that water system was extended to Southern California. So, if California is impossible. If modern California is impossible to conceive of without talking about water, and it isn't, uh, the New Deal marks the point at which water uh, becomes a systematic factor of production in uh, California's system. Before that, uh, farming in the San Joaquin was mostly dry farming. It was wheat farming. Uh, but then it, then it becomes very much water intensive. Without the uh, extension of the of the Central uh, Valley Project and the Colorado River Project, uh, Southern California development would be impossible to imagine. Now, mm-hmm. of course, there's going to be some significant changes in those patterns, um, given climate change and uh, global warming and and persistent drought. And it remains to be seen how we'll overcome um, that problem. But the course of the the last century, practically, I mean, it was about a century ago that that Hoover Dam was authorized in the early 1920s, and uh, that was that was really the beginning of California's water development. And as what's been that that century is now turning, and we have yet to see what's going to happen. Now as a result of climate change. Yeah, and there's a lot of great books on this. Uh, Cadillac Desert, uh, there's The Dreamt Land by a, a local writer, Mark Arax, who lives in my neck of the woods. Um, and there's a great picture in that book of, uh, you know, the, where there's this sign, I forget where, or it's a pole uh, somewhere in the Central Valley where you can see the, the, the earth 
uh, decreasing as the aquifers get pulled. And we're all racing towards that singularity of what yeah. do we do? I'm kind of, I would say somewhat moderate. I'm hopeful that we'll figure out something. I'm also pessimistic depends on whether it's 105 or 110 outside. Um, so that sets my mood, but nonetheless, um, how did, how did the new deal affect politics in California? Interesting thing about California was that, uh, reform in California tended in the 20th century, in the early 20th century, tended to come through the Republican party, political reform. The great reformer governor, Hiram Johnson was a progressive Republican. Uh, he's the man who helped to transform California politics in 1910, then became senator. In fact, uh, he's the uh, the guy that pressed so hard for what became Hoover Dam uh, as California senator. But So there was a wing of the Republican Party that was progressive and then a wing that was reactionary. And then the Democrats were, were largely the party of labor organized labor, and also a racist organized labor movement. So if, if people of color had any friends at all in California politics, it would have probably been among progressive Republicans, although they too had their, uh, their racist uh, uh, tendencies. But uh, as a result, the, the, when the Depression hit, the Democratic Party was at a very low ebb. There was not a single Democrat elected to any statewide office in California in the late 1920s. But the depression and the election in 32 really transformed that situation in California, I mean, as it did all over the country. Democratic registration skyrocketed. By uh, 1932, Democrats were uh, registering more voters than Republicans. And that uh, encouraged a former socialist by the name of Upton Sinclair, the mud, muckraking writer, the author of The Jungle, and many other books of um, muckraking nonfiction, ran for governor in 1934. Now, he lost, but he threw a terrible scare into California conservatives because he argued he was a former socialist, or he was a socialist, and he argued for socialist principles during the campaign. So he took, he moved the Democratic Party in California significantly to the left and organized, uh, as a result of his campaign, uh, hundreds of thousands of Californians to uh, register as Democrats. And by, in, in 1938, a Democrat indeed won the governorship and the Democrats took control of both houses of the legislature. That was the sort of the positive spin on that. The negative was that this was uh, Colbert Olson was his name, uh, the governor, the man who won as governor in 1938 and served as governor until for one term until 1942. But he was saddled with a very conservative rural Democratic Party. So the Democrats from the Central Valley and the northern part of the state were able to block all his New Deal programs. And he got very, Colbert Olson got very little accomplished. Instead, in 1942, uh, Earl Warren was elected governor. Now, he had been the uh, attorney general. And Earl Warren was a Republican, but a progressive Republican. And he basically was able to put into effect all the programs that Colbert Olson had wanted to put into effect and uh, became the most significant governor in California history, in my opinion. 
He uh, created the freeway system. He created uh, the state's higher education system. He put together a rainy day fund to plan for the transition from a war economy to a peacetime economy. Of course, he was also the architect of Japanese internment. <laughs> so again, we came up, we come face to face with that same California conundrum. But anyone who knows anything about Earl Warren knows that he later became uh, Chief Justice of the United States and uh, ushered in the period of the Warren Court uh, with many liberal rulings that really set the terms for the next 40 years of judicial interpretation. Of course, we've now moved into a very different era of Supreme Court interpretation, uh, kind of the, if you will, the exact opposite inclination. But Warren was uh, the really a product of the New Deal. It was allowed to do what he did because of the New Deal, but he did it under Republican auspices, but to the applause of the majority of, San, of California voters who by that point were Democrats. So a lot of us have heard of Earl Warren, but maybe not many of us have heard of Raymond Dasman. Um, I think I'm saying his name correctly. Uh, who was he and uh, what impact did he have on uh, California? Well, Ray Dasman uh, wrote a very important book in uh, the 1960s, 1965, I believe, that called The Destruction of California. It was a, a popular book, a controversial book, and in some ways it, it was the opening salvo in the beginning of the environmental movement in California. Uh, Dasman was a professor of uh, field ecology at uh, Humboldt State in the far north, studied deer populations and um, was, was his main focus. And he came to understand that the elimination of the predator species, because they were uh, you know, bears and coyotes and wolves, uh, because they threatened livestock, had the effect of increasing deer populations, which then the deer overbrowsed and uh, there was erosion and one thing led to another, in other words. He saw the way things were worked together and that, that it, it got him thinking about what did growth mean in California? And his argument in the destruction of California was that here we are living in the best of all. He was a California chauvinist, to be sure. He loved California. He grew up in San Francisco and, and he had cousins in rural areas in, the, in Northern California. He, he loved California and its landscape, but he saw development as destroying that, the things that he loved. And that was really the argument of the destruction of California. It came, as I say, it was published in 1965. It was controversial. It was provocative, uh, got, got a lot of press, but then it became like the textbook for the movement in 1969 with the Santa Barbara oil spill, which became the precipitating event of the organization of an environmental movement in California. But Dasman's book was there, and it sort of became uh, the go-to text mm. to tell people what was happening. Dasman went on to enjoy a, a long career um, as an ecologist. He uh, went to work for a, uh, a global conservation outfit. Uh, he and his family traveled around the world, and he what he discovered in those travels and, and uh, researches was a relationship, he thought, between 
the treatment of indigenous people and the fate of development, that when indigenous people were removed from their land, the human controls on development tended to disappear and, and development got out of control. And when he returned to the United States, he, uh, and then he took up a professorship at the University of California at Santa Cruz, uh, environmental history, one of the first environmental studies programs in California. And he was a professor there for the, the last 20 years of his life, for the last year, 20 years of his professional life. He retired in the late 90s. He made he made a he made he had a cabin in the uh, uh, Sierra Nevada, and uh, one of his neighbors was a, a man by the name of Gary Snyder, a a, a beat, beatnik poet. Mm. And uh, Snyder uh, had spent his life uh, reading and thinking about Native people. He had many Native friends, and many of his poems uh, are about native California. And Dasman and Snyder became friends and they published together and they published a number of works, uh, articles and um, sort of manifestos on how to get out of the bind we were in. And the argument was, we should turn the land back over to the natives we took it from. Now, they didn't mean Beverly Hills, but there's an, an enormous amount of open land in California, parkland, uh, national forest land, national monument land, deserts, uh, marshland, whatever. And they argued that the way to get back into sort of the charmed circle of development was to take, had this extensive knowledge of, of their environments and help use them as managers of the of the ecology. They were dismissed as fantasists, as, uh, as dreamers, as pipe dreamers. In fact, that's now happening. Mm. In fact, uh, Native people are, in fact, now being asked to take management roles in uh, managing many of the lands, uh, forest lands, mountain lands, desert lands that uh, under federal and state control, in some cases under corporate control, uh, native people are being asked to be, get back and to get involved again in managing as they had for millennia before. Uh, so in that way, Des Desmond was a prophet before his own time. He and Snyder made a proposal that now I think is being being taken seriously, uh, which offers us one way to try to think to you know to overcome this pernicious cycle of overdevelopment. Yeah, and that's a perfect transition point in overdevelopment to talk about kind of the end of your book, um, where we're talking about these slowing growth in California, overpopulation, maybe, that's maybe debatable. And then just this general, what we're experiencing is some kind of quasi exodus of people leaving to go other places in the United States. Um, so just looking back at history, do you see parallels with other periods? And do you see the kind of this slowing development or slowing growth or whatever we want to call it um, is due to internal, external factors or somewhere in between? Well, I think it's somewhere in between. Uh, the, uh, let me start by saying that historians are terrible prognosticators. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's why we go to history, right? To learn, to try right. to make better inform. On the other, yeah, on the other hand, I would say uh, the best guess about 
what's going to happen is to know what has happened. It's not a prediction. And, you know, you cannot predict based on the past, but patterns tend to replicate. So uh, you can say a few things about this. I mean, the the exodus, the so-called exodus from California, has been going on for quite a while. And it's it's a it's an exodus of white people. The, the, the focus has tended to be on upper class, uh, elite whites. In, term, in fact, from what I've read, I think most of the people who are moving outside the state tend to be of working class, relatively modern, me, modest means, uh, who are being squeezed out by housing costs. So not, it's not the wealthy who are leaving. I think it's the, it's the, lower, the lower middle class, the uh, the poor. I think uh, some things will remain the same. Uh, so that that tendency for there to be some white exodus, I think, will probably continue. I also believe that uh, the tendency for the continued immigration of people of color, that is from people from Asia uh, and the Pacific, uh, Pacific Islands, and from Latin America, in particular Central America and Mexico, I think that will continue. And in other words, the proportional proportion of the population that uh, is designated people of color, which is an inadequate designation, but that's the one we're stuck with, uh, will continue to rise. I think that the proportion of white people in the state will continue to fall. Uh, that I think we can uh, be sure of. And Persistent problems will continue until they are addressed and resolved. And what are those persistent problems? Uh, some of them are very obvious. An underfunded state and local government, uh, which descends from Proposition 13 and has never been fixed. Uh, an underfunded education system, uh, which as Earl Warren should have taught us in the 1940s, is the is the foundation of a growing and vigorous economy, uh, particularly the crisis at the state university and state college. State, you know, the state, the, the state universities and the state college system is deplorable. The underfunding of public schools is uh, deplorable. And California, despite some increases in the last 15 or 20 years in educational funding, is still scandalously low on the list of states uh, should be, you know, in the 1950s, it was in the top five and now it's the bottom five. Uh, this is uh, completely unacceptable. Of course, you got that, the problem of climate change and, um, and water, which is a problem that is, is going to require fundamental economic change, uh, fundamental lifestyle changes which I see no evidence of historically, uh, no pattern in the past, uh, which would predict what we're about to do. So I think we stand at a precipice, at a break point in California history uh, that we find it very difficult to predict what is about to happen because these challenges are unprecedented. And uh, that unprecedented challenge comes at a time when we have a political system which has essentially over the last 15 or 20 years been transformed through the empowerment of particularly Latino voters, but in general, people of color. 
so that we have a much different state government than we had 25 or 30 years ago. Uh, so uh, we have a state government with no record yet accumulated of confronting the kind of problems that we confront. So I think uh, all bets are off and but we need to wait and see what's going to happen in the next 10 years. But let's let's transition to my favorite subject. This is where I uh, rub my hands together in excitement, <laughs> which is where we talk about books. You have a great uh, bibliography at the end of your book uh, where people can uh, go to look to find resources to read more in depth about particular periods in California history. But I want you to just kind of point out for us maybe a few books that were either impactful for you when you were putting this book together or maybe books that people haven't heard of, you know, we've all heard of some of the, the big, the big, you know, the Barbary coast, the Kevin stars, some of those, some of those big books and that kind of canon of California history. Um, So maybe, maybe some books that deserve more airtime. Well, apropos of the conversation we were just having, I would recommend uh, MCAT Anderson's tending the wild, which is uh, she's an ecologist and a uh, uh, an expert in Native American culture, and tending the wild is a an extended and it's a great read, uh, an extended discussion of the way in which Native people both think about and interact with the natural world. And her argument is that in historical terms is that what people found in California, which they took to be a sort of natural abundance was actually an abundance that had been tended uh, and created by native people. So I, that that's, uh, and I think that book is 10 or 15 years old now, but it very, very well worth uh, revisiting. And I would also go in, in that regard, uh, recommend Damon Aikens and William Bowers uh, newer book, uh, I think published just last year, uh, We Are the Land. And we had them a, on the uh, podcast. Yeah, absolutely. They're, yeah, uh, they're, it's a wonderful book. I would you know, start by recommending uh, that people become better acquainted with the native history of California. And then, uh, again, in that regard, uh, uh, Stephen Hackle's Children of Coyote, uh, which is a, uh, uh, a wonderful history of the missions which emphasizes uh, the self-activity of Native people. He argues that the missions were really Native communities uh, under the authority of uh, priests and soldiers. But he stresses the continuity between uh, Native communities before and after missionization, sees the survival of Native people as the the real uh, significant outcome of the mission environment. And... uh, before moving on from that, I, I would uh, highly also recommend the, the work of Rose Beebe and Robert Senkowitz, who are uh, historians of uh, early California, but have done two collections of documentary sources, which read like works of fiction. I, one is called Testimonios, which is the testimonies of California, early California women, and the other collection is Lands of Promise and Despair, which are chronicles of early California. So uh, Rose Beebe and Robert Senkowitz. A few other fa- uh, favorite books, uh, Darren Raspa's Bloody Bay, uh, which is, uh, was, I think it's a maybe 
five or 10 years old, which is a, a study of San Francisco crime and vigilantism, which goes against the grain by arguing that it was not as bad as people said it was. And there were other reasons for emphasizing crime, as just as there are now. Uh, there are political reasons to emphasize crime. Um, so Ben Madley, An American Genocide, which is a, uh, a history of the American war on Native people in California, which is horrendous. But um, as Governor Newsom said uh, a year or two ago, uh, genocide is the right word for it. And we, you know, Californians need to face up to the fact that they are the inheritors of a genocidal state tradition. Let's see how I can move Richard Orsi's Sunset Limited, uh, history of the, uh, we talked about the railroad, the history of the Central Pacific, Southern Pacific, which is uh, based on all kinds of wonderful primary sources into the uh, sources of the railroad itself. Doug Fleming's Bound for Freedom, which is a, uh, a history of African-American migration to Los Angeles. Been a lot of books on Los Angeles in the recent past. Uh, Mark Wilde's Street Meeting about Los Angeles neighborhoods. Um, Eduardo Pagan's uh, Murder at the Sleepy Lagoon um, about the uh, Pachucos of Los Angeles, the zoot suit, so-called Zoot Suit Riots. Uh, for, the, for a more modern period, uh, Mike Davis and John Weiner's uh, Set the Night on Fire. Uh, from last year, which uh, is about uh, the progressive political movement, the left wing in the 1960s, 70s and beyond. For my uh, Central Valley local listeners, are there any uh, books that you found that really highlight uh, the impact of the Central Valley project by any chance? You know, I think not recently. I've been trying to think about books that are published in the last five, 10 years. I think the Central Valley is uh, one of those areas that needs a lot of new attention. No recent books actually come leaping to mind. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's close by talking about uh, where people can find your work. I mean, I bought your book off Amazon, but I encourage people to do it at their local bookstore if they can. Uh, I don't have a as much access as where I am as other people might in bigger metropolitan areas. Um, and I encourage them to buy your new book, but also uh, the book that we referred to earlier. Eternity sorry. Street. Yeah, Eternity Streets. Um, yeah, that that one I really enjoyed. Both of them are great. Um, what are you working on next? I'm not exactly sure. I just, the, the California book just being published. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been uh, actually working a little bit on family history. Oh, okay. Uh, looking at the... Uh, migration of the Farragher clan from the Isle of Man to the United States in the 1840s and 50s. I'm also uh, doing a couple of long review articles for academic journals. I mean, one of those periods of transition to the next project. And so I'm actually fishing for mm. a book project right now. I appreciate you talking with me. This has been a lot of fun and I know listeners are gonna get a lot out of this conversation. Well, thanks for having me. It's been very, very enjoyable. West, Fresno's best. 
Thanks for listening, folks. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best. We'll see you next time. <laughs>